Church, I'm so glad to be worshiping with you today. I'm also grateful for all the gifts of those who have led us in worship, praying and offering testimony, and for singing. Our student choir is really amazing. We are continuing a sermon series entitled Galatians Afresh, where we are taking a deep dive into Paul's letter to the fledgling churches in Galatia. Now, these emerging faith communities are located or were located in modern-day Turkey, and they were comprised of a mixture of Jews and Gentiles who followed Christ. Paul and his fellow missionary Barnabas planted these churches by preaching the gospel, the good news that salvation is a free gift of God's grace, presented in the person of Jesus Christ, and received through repentance and faith. And after spending a number of months nurturing these young churches, Paul and Barnabas moved on to continue their missionary endeavors. But after Paul left, other Christian missionaries came into these churches and were promoting what Paul contemptuously called a different gospel teaching the Galatians that in addition to putting their faith in Christ, that they had to become Jewish, specifically that the men had to be circumcised. And thus, the question at stake throughout this letter is whether the Gentile Christians, the Galatian Christians, must become Jewish to be part of the family of God. And for Paul, layering the gospel with any kind of additional Jewish practice. It wasn't a technical issue. It wasn't a secondary issue. It was a central issue because it suggested that Christ's crucifixion and resurrection standing alone were insufficient for salvation. Paul's firmly held conviction was that the gospel of Jesus Christ plus anything else was no gospel at all. And to make his point, Paul offers of all things his personal testimony, showing how the simple gospel of God's grace powerfully transformed him into a new creation in Christ. And this is what Paul writes in chapter 1, verses 13 through 24. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia, and later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, well, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went into Syria and Cilicia. 
I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Mm. So good. But we're going to have to pray before we get into any of this. So let's pray together. Lord God, you alone are the word. And you alone have the words of eternal life. Speak, Lord. Speak to us as we are gathered here today and speak through us as we are scattered in the world this week. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. And we pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Paul begins here by sharing some of the details of his previous way of life. And that's a phrase that's thick with meaning. Paul isn't like a politician running for office who attempts to deodorize his old life with some vague statement like, mistakes, mistakes were made. He doesn't try to minimize his sin by saying, hey, I'm only human. That's not Paul. He serves up his real story, medium raw, and it's vulnerable and honest and uncomfortably specific. Paul admits to comprehensive wrong thinking, wrong desiring, wrong doing, a wrong way of life. And Paul's story is powerful and personal, but it's also paradigmatic. He was lost, and then he was found. He was dead, and then he was brought to life. Paul's story echoes the biblical story. Paul's story echoes Israel's story. Paul's story echoes the human story. And if we're honest, Paul's story echoes in our story. Now, there may be specific elements of Paul's previous way of life that resonate with you. Perhaps there's a time in your life when you single-mindedly pursued success to the detriment of your character. And you're much like Paul, who, say, who made the same bad deal to advance in Judaism beyond many of his own age. In your younger days, you might have run with a tough crowd. Paul had a violent past, too. Or you may have been the religious type who took yourself so seriously that you assumed you were appointed by God to judge the culture and police the church. Sounds like Paul, who was extremely zealous in mistaking the traditions of his fathers for faithfulness to God. But no matter what your past looks like, if you've ever found yourself in the lyrics of Amazing Grace, then there's something in Paul's story for you. Paul's story certainly resonates with me. I know what it's like to be deceived like he was, to think you're the, too smart or too sophisticated, too something to follow Jesus. And I get how someone can fill up their life with something other than Christ. I packed more than three decades of my life with noise and nonsense and activity and alcohol and sex and sports and success because there was an emptiness inside of me that was too big 
and too hungry for me to face. But no matter who we are or where we are in our faith journey, our previous way of life can sit on top of us like a marble slab sits on top of a tomb, trapping us underneath. But in Paul's story, we find hope. G. Campbell Morgan was a 20th century British evangelist, teacher, and preacher who once recounted a visit that he took to Italy when he wandered into an old cemetery. And there at the center of the graveyard was a prominent tomb that apparently belonged to someone of some repute. And atop the grave was a massive slab of marble, feet thick, weighing hundreds and hundreds of pounds. Several hundred years ago, an acorn had fallen into the grave and had given birth to new life that somehow grew into a shoot, that somehow grew into a tree that continued to grow and grow so big and so strong that it punched right through that massive marble slab, breaking it in two and tossing it on either side of the grave. That's the power of the gospel that Paul preached. And it's the same gospel that Jesus so often described as a mere seed, a mere acorn, something so small and fragile that a small rock could crack it and a massive marble slab would absolutely crush it. But when the gospel seed takes root in heart soil that is humble and receptive, it has the mighty power to break open tombs and release the dead. That's the point of Paul's story. He's telling them that the simple gospel of God's grace that he preaches is the real gospel because it produces real transformation. As he explains in another letter, the gospel does not come from persuasive words of human wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that our faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. And in telling his story, Paul's not saying, look how good I am. He's saying, look how great God is. But even as the gospel delivers us from a previous way of life, it doesn't do away with our previous life. Like Lazarus, we've been called from death to life by Christ himself. But as we stumble into our new life, we soon discover that just like Lazarus, we're still wearing grave clothes, that our past stubbornly clings to us. And yes, the good news of the gospel is that we are forgiven and declared righteous, that we have a new hope, a new heart, and a new future. But that doesn't mean that our past won't continue to influence us in different ways. Galatians actually gives us a clear example of this in the person of Peter. Peter was an apostle, part of Jesus' inner circle. He was the first disciple to recognize Jesus as the Christ. He saw Jesus' miracles up close. He spent weeks with the resurrected, risen Lord. After Pentecost, Peter raised someone from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter is a real deal Christian 
He gets it. He's all in for Jesus. But despite all of that, Peter still struggled to leave his past behind. Peter knew. Peter knew that Gentile Christians didn't have to observe every stipulation of the Jewish law to faithfully follow Jesus. And as proof of that, he spent time with the Galatian Christians and enjoyed table fellowship with them as they ate foods that Jews couldn't eat. Those people were his people. But when a contingent of Jewish Christians from Jerusalem showed up in Galatia, Peter's previous way of life in Judaism rose up within him, and he backed away from table fellowship with the Galatian Christians. Those people were no longer his people because his past had hijacked his present. And once again, all of us should be able to identify with Peter here. I know I can. When I was saved by grace, I experienced some radical changes in my life. I was experiencing peace and forgiveness and joy like I never had before. My social life and my social ethics were changing. It was a really exciting time. But even as my life started to flow in a different direction, I found myself bumping up against all kinds of hurts and habits and hang-ups from my past. I was struggling to find my security in God rather than money. I came to see that I was more shaped by my family narrative than I was by the biblical narrative. I viewed justice from a partisan political perspective rather than a biblical kingdom perspective. And as someone who was raised and educated to lean on my own understanding, I was reading scripture to confirm my choices, not to inform my choices. I was terrified of vulnerability, I was allergic to confession, and I could not even begin to grasp why it would be a good idea to offer up my weakness in the vain hope that God would show through that his strength. Because my past had so profoundly shaped me. But here's where the good news continues to be good. The gospel is not only powerful for our justification, it's powerful for our sanctification. In other words, the gospel not only offers us righteous standing in God's sight, it also makes us holier as we grow in grace. It is able to change us, to remake our character so that we more and more resemble Christ himself. As pastor and author Peter Scazzaro said in his amazing book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, the work of growing in Christ actually demands that we go back in order to break free from unhealthy and destructive patterns that prevent us from loving ourselves and others as God designed. The gospel delivers us from slavery to our past by empowering us to deal with our past. And for my part, I had to do the hard interior work of acknowledging my past, of acknowledging my wounds, confronting the lies I had believed about myself and the world and God and others, and admitting that there were still unevangelized places in my believing heart. But in the battle with our previous way of life, we are not alone in the fight. 
The Holy Spirit is with us, convicting us that this is work that must be done, while also convincing us that it is work that can be done. And importantly, the Spirit shows us that this is work that is best done in community. After all, when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb and he stumbled out with his grave clothes on, it was to Lazarus's friends in the faith that Jesus turned and spoke and said, unbind him, let him go. Church, we need each other's help to take off our grave clothes and clothe ourselves with Christ. Which leads me to the final point in this passage. God's calling not only turned Paul inward to reveal the Son of God in me, it also turned Paul outward so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Oddly enough, Paul's personal story ends with, it's not all about me. It's about others. Because the divine calling is not an end in itself. It's not a single serving meal for Paul's personal consumption and personal spiritual nourishment. Because church and apple tree doesn't eat its own fruit. And this new life we have in Christ, this tree that grew up out of our grave and split our marble tomb in two, that tree is meant to bear fruit. And that fruit is meant to be food for others. As Bible scholar Heidi Armstrong notes, God's love is revealed in Jesus Christ. To what end? For what purpose? To share God's grace in word and deed, especially to the last, the least, and the lost. And that is so very true, and you can see the truth of it at the end of this passage. Paul writes that the churches in Judea, they didn't know him personally. They knew him by his missionary reputation. But here's what they said about him. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And he praised God because of me. Did you hear it? Paul's previous way of life is actually mentioned as a reason to praise God and his transforming power. There's a Japanese art form called kintsugi, and it's a method of restoring broken ceramics with a lacquer that's mixed with gold or silver or platinum. And the philosophy behind it is to value every ragged, broken piece, to feature the process of restoration as part of the object's beauty rather than as something to hide. Kintsugi acknowledges the brokenness and then uses it, features it, to make something beautiful. God looks upon each one of us the way a kintsugi master looks upon a shattered bowl, where the world might see something broken, wasted, useless, God sees something good and useful and beautiful. Just look at what he did with Paul. While, Paul. while Paul was oppressing the newborn church of Christ, this is what the risen Lord said over him. He is a chosen instrument of mine. When nobody else could see it, Christ saw it. 
and took hold of him and did a restoring work, transforming him from a persecutor to a proclaimer. He used Paul's previous way of life of chasing people away from the kingdom to glorify God's rescuing grace and actually bring people into the kingdom. And church, if we faithfully and vulnerably surrender our whole selves to Christ, he will do the same to and through us. He will take every element of our previous way of life in his nail-scarred hands and like the master craftsman that he is, we rework it to refine us and restore us to reach the least the last and the lost. And as he does, our points of deepest pain will be repurposed into our places of greatest ministry. And you've seen this. If you've ever been delivered from any kind of dead end in your life, you can be a living signpost that points others the way out, the way back to God. If you're a prodigal come home, you can be a living hope to point others home, to actually walk others home because you know the way. If God has helped you see through the empty promises of worldly success, you can be a living truth that there is abundant life in Christ. If you've ever been sobered by the Spirit, you can be a living promises. You can be a living promise to those who are still living enslaved. And if you've ever fallen into the pain, into the depths of loss, only to find the loving Christ there at the bottom, discover he's looking for you, then you can be a living light to other people who are still walking in darkness. Because the Spirit can transform our story just like he transformed Paul's story. And turn us all into a, a living invitation that says to the world, the amazing grace that saved a wretch like me can save you too. Amen.